following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Now, if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me again today to Paul's first epistle to Timothy. And we pick up again at verse one, uh, chapter 1, 1 Timothy, reading again verses 18 to 20. 1 Timothy, chapter 1. Verses 18 to 20. Paul writes to Timothy, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. (coughs) Our Father, we are grateful today for another opportunity to gather in this place to worship your great name. And now we come humbly before your word. We would be as your servant Josiah, those who tremble at your word, and who also rejoice in your word, who count it as our life, for we know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we pray that you would give us understanding, that we would grasp the meaning of your word today, and that its power would be felt in our hearts, and that it would work in us effectually, to strengthen us for the Christian warfare. And we pray for those who are lost that you would have mercy upon them even this day and bring them and draw them to the Savior. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, The book, uh, Meet the Puritans, we have it in our bookstore, Meet the Puritans. It it contains 146, I, I went down and counted, I think it was 146, I may have skipped one or missed one. But roughly 140-some little mini-biographies of influential uh, Puritan preachers and authors, uh, and also has references to their various works. Now, one of those short biographies that's given by Joel Beakey is that of Walter Marshall, the author of the book, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. And Marshall lived from 1628 to 1680, At age 11, he went to study at Winchester College, and then he became a fellow at New College, Oxford from 1648 to 1657. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in 1652. In 1656, he was appointed to a ministry position in the Church of England. But when the Act of Uniformity was passed in 1662, like hundreds of Puritan colleagues, Marshall decided on the basis of conscience not to conform, and he was ejected (coughs) from (coughs) his parish. But soon after that, he was installed as minister of an independent congregation at Gosport, Hampshire, where he served the last 18 years of his life. But for some time, Marshall, even as a minister of the gospel, expressed, uh, he experienced bouts of deep spiritual depression, and distress. And for years he had sought after holiness, for peace, for an assurance of his salvation. 
And eventually he went to the great Thomas Goodwin seeking help. And he told Goodwin about the sins that weighed heavily on his conscience. Well, Goodwin's classic response was that Marshall had forgotten to mention the greatest of all sins, the sin of not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of his sins and the sanctifying of his nature. Well, this led to a great change in Marshall's thinking and consequently in his life and ministry. He began to realize that he had been trying in part to make his own personal righteousness the basis of his dealings with God and the ground of his peace rather than Christ and his righteousness alone received by faith. He, find, he found peace, joy, increasing holiness as he focused on Christ, doing battle with sin, pursuing holiness from the posture of faith in the gospel. In his book that you've heard us mention many times here, I've mentioned many times over the years and uh, uh, Pastor Nick has mentioned it many times, his book, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, was the fruit of that experience. We have that book in our bookstore. We're always promoting it. Well, I mentioned this by way of introduction as we return to this text in our study of 1 Timothy and because of its relevance uh, to what we will focus on today. And I remind you here that the Apostle Paul describes the Christian life in our text as a warfare. And there's this concern that Timothy successfully waged this good warfare, and Paul gives him encouragement and instruction regarding how he is to do this. Well, we've already been looking at the passage, the last two messages, and we return to it today. In the first message, the focus was simply on this way in which Paul describes the Christian life, his description of the life of faith and devotion and service to Christ as a warfare. He says to Timothy, he speaks to Timothy about waging the good warfare. That's his concern in this passage, or it could be translated by the word fight. The New American Standard has fight the good fight. And I drew out from this description several basic and yet uh, very important truths that we need to be clear on as God's people. For example, this reminds us that the Christian life is indeed a warfare. We have enemies, real enemies, who are seeking to destroy our souls, to cause us to suffer shipwreck, as Paul describes it at the end of verse 19. Enemies that are seeking to hinder us and to destroy our testimony for Christ and even to lead us, if possible, to apostasy. And we saw that these enemies include Satan and his demonic hosts, the allurements and temptations, and also the hostility of an evil world, and there's also the presence of indwelling sin in our own hearts. And then we also saw that not only is the Christian life a warfare, it's a warfare you and I have to wage. This speaks of waging the good warfare. And yes, we, we wage this warfare in dependence upon God, upon the promised help of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us in union with Christ, but still it's a warfare that we must wage. We're not to be passive in this. We must be actively, earnestly, and sometimes painfully engaging in this conflict, or we will be defeated. So we have reference here in our text to the warfare that we must wage. But then the Apostle Paul gives Timothy encouragement to motivate him 
in this warfare. And he also tells them and tells us how to wage this warfare well and with ultimate success. And this is what we began to look at last time and we come back to today. What does Paul underscore? Uh, to help Timothy to fight this good fight well. Well, the first, first thing, and this was the focus of the message last week, uh, Paul says, in effect, Timothy, you must remember that it is your solemn duty to wage this good warfare. Timothy, it's a command. It's a commission. It's a responsibility that was given to you and a duty for which you are accountable to God and accountable to the church. And you must remember this. And that's one way to summarize the emphasis of Paul's words at the beginning of verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, which we saw really was connected to his ordination, that by them you may wage the good warfare. But that's not all Paul tells Timothy. And as we begin to pick up now from where we left off last week, he also tells them that you must wage this warfare in, a pro in the proper manner and by proper means. What Paul describes by these words in verse 19, he says, at the end of verse 18, by them you may wage the good warfare. And then he says, having faith and a good conscience. Having faith and a good conscience. And this points us to how this fight is to be carried out. In order to wage this good warfare successfully, Timothy, you must have faith and a good conscience. Or better, uh, you must maintain faith and a good conscience. The word is a present active participle. The idea is continuing to have, keeping, maintaining faith and a good conscience. And it's an active participle. So this is not something that just passively happens to you or is done to you. Paul is speaking of something you must actively do. Maintaining faith. And, and this is why I think that some translations actually translate it, holding to faith. So we have this personal activity of maintaining these two internal conditions of soul. Faith and a good conscience. And both of these are absolutely essential to waging a good warfare. And to not suffering shipwreck in your Christian walk. And they also have an intimate relationship to one another, as I hope to show later. But today we're going to focus on the first of these, these this matter of faith. Having or maintaining faith. But now how do we understand this? Well, there are some who have understood this objectively. Now what do I mean? Well, they understand it to mean holding to that which is to be believed or holding to sound Christian doctrine. Others have understood it subjectively. Not what is to be believed, but the personal act or disposition of believing it. In other words, maintaining personal faith in the gospel message. Now, which is correct? Well, well I'm convinced that this second meaning is the correct understanding of the apostle here. In other words, he's not talking about having or maintaining right doctrine. He's talking about maintaining faith in right doctrine, or more specifically, maintaining faith in the gospel message. And there are several reasons that I believe that this is the correct understanding. <clears throat> First, normally, when the word faith is used to speak of that which is to be believed, or to the sum of Christian doctrine, it's usually preceded by the article, which we translate the, in English, the faith, that which is to be believed. 
the Christian faith. Ephesians 4.13, Paul writes, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. In fact, we see this in the next verse when Paul mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander who concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. They have rejected the faith. That is, they've suffered shipwreck by drifting away into false doctrine. So the word faith seems to be used in two different ways here in our passage. First, having faith, faith without the article, the act or disposition of believing, and then suffering shipwreck concerning the faith, that which is to be believed. So to summarize, the point I'm making is that here in this first use of the word faith, we don't have the article, which supports the understanding that this is not what is, to, what is uh, believed, as some have interpreted it, but the activity of believing it. That's what Paul has in mind. He's referring to one's personal faith in the gospel message. And secondly... I think this is confirmed by the way Paul uses the word in the preceding context in this chapter. In fact, faith as believing the gospel has been a major theme in this chapter. If you look back up at verse 5, now the purpose of the commandment, he says, is love from a pure heart, which issues from a pure heart, from a good conscience, which issues from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, which issues from sincere faith. In other words, reversing that, the idea is believing the gospel pacifies the conscience, purifies the heart, and produces love. And the emphasis there is on the act or disposition of believing. Again, verse 14. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And he speaks in verse 15 of Christ showing all long-suffering toward him as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So the context also supports understanding the word faith here to refer to belief, believing the gospel. And then there's also parallel texts in Paul's epistles that I think support this understanding. For example, in Ephesians 6, when Paul speaks of the Christian's warfare, and he, he, you remember there he uses the metaphor of armor, and he distinguishes between truth, what is to be believed, and faith, the act of believing it. He speaks of having your waist girded with truth, truth, sound doctrine. But then he also says, above all, taking the shield of faith. There is truth, what is to be believed, but distinguished from that, there is faith, the act or habit of truly believing it. Also consider the words of John in 1 John 5, 4. He's speaking of the Christian's warfare, the Christian's conflict, and he writes, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In other words, he who believes the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So then what is Paul telling Timothy here and telling us that is absolutely necessary and essential if we're going to successfully wage this good warfare so as not to suffer shipwreck? Well, he's telling us very simply that we must have and maintain faith in the gospel. In other words, we must keep believing and trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and salvation. Or as the confession puts it, faith accepting, receiving, and resting upon Jesus Christ alone for justification, 
sanctification, and eternal life as he is revealed and offered to us, freely offered to us in the gospel. If we would wage a good warfare, we must keep having faith in the gospel. Now, let me take you back to the story I told in the introduction. You remember the words of Thomas Goodwin to Walter Marshall. Marshall was struggling. He was spiritually depressed. He was being defeated in this spiritual warfare with the world and the flesh and the devil. And he came to Goodwin telling him about this, his struggle, and telling him about the sins that weighed heavily upon his conscience. And what was Goodwin's response? He told Marshall that he had forgotten to mention the greatest sin of all, the sin of not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins and the sanctifying of his nature. The greatest sin of all, not believing the gospel, not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the sanctifying of your nature. You know, we often fail to consider, as we should, the unbelief is a sin. It's not a trifling thing. It's not a mere affliction or misfortune for which we are not responsible. No, it's a sin not to believe the gospel. Or let me put it this way to make this even clearer. It's a sin not to apply the promises of the gospel to yourself by fully trusting in Jesus Christ for the salvation promised. It's a sin not to do that. In fact, it's the greatest of all sins. As Spurgeon once said, unbelief will destroy the best of us. Faith will save the worst of us. Or you turn it around, faith will save the worst of us. Unbelief will destroy the best of us. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if we would wage this good warfare successfully, if we would not be defeated and destroyed by the world, the flesh, and the devil, this is where it begins. This is how we must continue. This is what we must keep doing, keep coming back to. We must wage this warfare from the posture of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls as he is freely offered to us in the gospel. And you know, as I was thinking about this and about this text before us, I just decided I just can't brush by this too quickly. If we're truly going to grasp the importance of this, and what Paul is telling us here, if we're truly going to benefit from this exhortation, as we should, I think we need to take some time to open up exactly what this means and to consider how exactly this relates to waging the good warfare. So my plan is to dig into this subject and to do so under the following headings. First, what is saving faith? What is this faith by which we are saved and that we are to continue exercising? Two, why is this faith essential to successfully engaging in the warfare and conflict of the Christian life? And then three, and we won't get this far this week, some of this we're going to come back to, and I know what you're thinking, we're going to be in 1 Timothy forever, but we're going to come back to, God willing, next week. Three, how can we as Christians maintain and strengthen our faith in the gospel? All right? So we begin today with the first question. What is this saving faith that we must have and continue to maintain? 
As most of you know here today, is the repeated emphasis of Scripture that we are saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace, that is, as a free gift through faith in the Lord Jesus. The promises of salvation <coughs> and eternal life are made to those who believe. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said, John 6, 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Indeed, John tells us in chapter 20, verse 21, that this was the reason, under the inspiration of the Spirit, this was the reason that he wrote his gospel record. He says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Indeed, this is the purpose for which the whole Bible was written that we might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Acts 10.43, to him, to Christ, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Acts 13.39, therefore let it be known to you that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.11 For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. 1 John 5.13 These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe. The very thing Paul's telling us here that you may continue to believe. That you may believe more confidently, more firmly that you continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And we could go on with text after text like this. Faith in Christ, believing on him, believing on the name, that is, uh, that's, that's a way of saying on, on the revelation of Jesus Christ that has been given to us in the gospel. Believing on him as God has revealed him to us in scripture is what brings the sinner into a saved condition and makes him a possessor of eternal life. While on the other hand, those who do not believe remain lost and condemned, John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And such will be damned to hell forever. So I trust we see that faith in Christ is absolutely essential. It is by faith in him that we are saved and can know that we have eternal life. Well, seeing this is so, one of the great hindrances in the way of sinners being saved is a failure to, to see this and what this means, but also, also, one of the great causes of a lack of assurance and stability in the warfare and conflict of the Christian life for the Christian is confusion about this matter of saving faith and its ongoing importance. So this brings us then to our first question. What is this saving faith that we must have and continue to maintain? Well, let me zero in on some things about it that should help us. First of all, it's object. What is the object? 
of saving faith. What is it that saving faith believes and is trusting it? When Paul speaks of having faith, he's not just saying, you know, you know, keep your chin up and have a positive attitude and everything will be okay. He's not just talking about just believing anything. Just have faith. And as long as you believe in something, all is well. Or you'll, you'll often hear people say today, well, I, I'm a person of faith. Well, that's great, but I mean, faith in what? Faith in who? What is the object of the faith that saves? Well, it is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, as he is revealed to us in Scripture, is the object of saving faith. And that was the case in all of those texts that I quoted to you earlier. It's faith specifically directed toward Christ that brings the soul into a saved condition. Now, again, it's faith in Christ as he is presented to us in the gospel. Not some kind of of Christ that a man may have dreamed up in his own head, but the Christ of the Bible, God the Son, who became man, the God-man who came into this world and lived a sinless life in fulfillment of all of the precepts of God's law, and who suffered and endured the penalty of the law, the punishment that we deserve as sinners for our sins as the sinner's substitute on the cross, and who rose from the dead, certifying that his sacrifice was sufficient to wipe away our guilt, to free us from sin's punishment, and who is now seated at the right hand of the Father as Lord of all and is coming again to judge the world in righteousness. It is faith in the person and saving work of the Christ of the Bible. Now, as simple as that may sound, simple as that may sound, that really strikes at the heart of a problem that people sometimes have. And that problem is they look to faith as the object of their faith and not to Christ. Their faith is in their so-called faith or Maybe it's in their decision or it's in a prayer that they prayed when they walked an aisle one Sunday and their trust is in what they did or in a feeling that they once felt. But whatever experiences you may or may not have had in your life, my friend, here's the real question. Are you relying on Jesus Christ alone and his finished work for acceptance with God? And even true Christians can struggle with this and it can greatly hinder our assurance we get our eyes off of Christ and his work as the basis of our salvation and we start looking at our faith and at our experience and perplexing questions begin to torment us. As someone is uh, Beaky commenting on this. He, he's, he, he mentions questions like these that begin to torment us. Is my faith strong enough? Are the fruits of faith fruitful enough? Are my feelings and experiences deep enough and clear enough? But listen, the Bible speaks of weak faith, but still faith. It's weak faith. It speaks of strong faith. But you see, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's what or who your faith is in. Do you see the difference? When those guys, I think I used this illustration, when those guys a couple years ago were escaping from the, the, the airport in Kabul, and the plane comes down, and they're running for their lives, and they're scared, and they jump on the plane to fly home, well, imagine here's someone, he, he's scared to death, he gets on the plane, and once he gets on the plane, he's still scared to death. He's like, man, are we going to make it? You know, I'm still... Here's another guy, man, once he steps on the plane, he has, he, he's completely calm, he's assured. Well, his faith in the plane's stronger than the other guy, but, but are they, you know, is one of them more saved than the other guy? 
though they're equally saved, because it wasn't the strength of their faith, it's what they put their faith in, right? When they got onto that airplane to escape from what was happening there in Afghanistan at that airport. Well, you see, in the same way, it doesn't matter if your faith you think is weak and feeble, you find yourself attacked at times by doubt and fears, even so. If your faith and only trust is in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And you are saved. The question is, who is the object of your faith? But let's consider in a bit more detail, secondly, the nature of saving faith. What exactly is this faith in Christ? Well, let me mention three things about it. First of all, one of the things that distinguishes this faith from just a general knowledge of the truth or uh, understanding of the truth is that saving faith presupposes and it's inseparable from an awareness of my sinfulness and helplessness and danger. An awareness that I need to be saved, that I cannot save myself. You remember the gospel is addressed to sinners. It's a message that proclaims to sinners the way of deliverance from my sins and from the condemnation that I deserve. Now, obviously, such a message will never connect or appeal to a person unless there is a conviction of my sinfulness and my need, a conviction of my need of just the salvation the gospel offers. It's been put this way. Our faith begins with a sense of bankruptcy, with a realization that we are sinners, deserving God's wrath and condemnation. We're unable to save ourselves. Every believer, whether growing up in a Christian home and never remembering a day when he or she is not trusting in Christ, or whether coming to Christ later in life, every Christian has this existential realization of his own sin and depravity. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in beginning to awaken us to faith, bringing us to faith in Christ, and also in continuing to keep us trusting in Christ alone. I don't know, I think I heard this illustration somewhere a long time ago, and I don't remember the details, so maybe you've heard it, and the way I tell it's wrong, but it's going to sound silly, but I think it gets the point across. Let's say you're on an airplane, and you're flying to California, and you're on one of these big jets, and you're just, you're, you're at ease, you're, you're in comfort, you're reading a book, you're drinking a glass of water, and, and here's there's some guy on the, on the plane, he's got this big stack of, of parachutes, and he's, he's trying to convince people to put on a parachute for your safety. And so he comes to you, and you look at this guy, <laughs> man, this guy's crazy, you know. I've been flying for years and never had a problem. The plane's going great. Why do I want to put this uncomfortable parachute on and sit here in my, in my chair with a parachute on? This is crazy. I don't need that. But let's imagine that you're on the plane, and all of a sudden, man, it starts going like this. And then the plane starts diving and you hear the, the captain comes over and says, we're going down, we're going down, prepare. Man, you're going to be looking for that guy. You want that parachute, you want to put it on now. It's valuable, it's desirable. Well, you see, men will not put on Christ until they see their desperate need of him. I mean, they may know about him, 
but they will not be able, they will not have a heart to trust him, to lay hold upon him as their only hope of salvation unless God has awakened in them a sense of their own sinfulness. You say, but Pastor Smith, how much of this conviction of sin is consistent with the existence of saving faith? Well, God brings sinners to Christ in a variety of ways, some more dramatically, like the Philippian jailer, some more gently, like Lydia, some in a more sudden and distinct manner, and others like Nicodemus, kind of more of a gradual and hard-to-trace manner. Some have much deeper convictions than others. But as another as well put it, everyone who is believing on Christ and is continuing to believe on Christ as he is offered to sinners in the gospel in at least some measure sees their heart to be so sinful and their sins to be so great and deserving of divine wrath, and their helplessness to be so complete as to need an almighty Savior to deliver them and to reconcile them to God. And the only proof that that is true of you, how do I know if that's true of me, me, is that it's driven you out of all hope in yourself to Christ alone for mercy. Faith doesn't exist in a vacuum. It involves the awareness of my sinfulness and need and that I can do nothing to save myself. And then secondly, saving faith involves believing that even though I am a sinner, that the message of the gospel is true and is true for me. It involves the inward persuasion of the heart that this, this good news for sinners is true. And this element of saving faith is brought out in many places where faith is described as believing that. Believing that. Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's believing that. This is so. John six sixty nine. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe. We are convinced that this is so. It's described as seeing and being persuaded that something is true. Faith believes that the gospel message is true. The message that Jesus Christ is indeed God the Son and the Savior of sinners. That there is no salvation apart from him. That he, is, he was sent from the Father. That he offered up himself as an atoning sacrifice upon the cross that is complete, sufficient, and accepted by God. So that even though I'm a sinner who deserves to be damned, God has provided a way that I, even I, can be forgiven and saved. He believes that God promises to save all who put their trust in the Lord Jesus and to cast out no one who comes to him for the salvation he has accomplished. Faith believes this. It believes that the blood of Christ is able to cleanse me from all of my sins and to reconcile me to God. In other words, again, faith believes that the message of the gospel is true. But it not only believes that the gospel is true, thirdly, saving faith also involves actually trusting then in the Christ of the gospel to save me. It's not just a passive persuasion of the truthfulness of the gospel and its promises. Faith involves then the moving of the heart to him, the reaching out of the soul to receive this Christ and this salvation in him for myself. The entrustment of yourself and your soul's salvation to the Christ who is set forth in the gospel. That's really the real heart, the real essence of what faith is. It involves the engaging of the will, not waiting for something to zap me or to come over me, but looking to him as is described in scripture, or running to him 
going to him, fighting against, trampling over my unbelief, and daring to trust him, and to believe God's promise that as I come to Christ, he indeed will not cast me out. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I cast myself upon you. Do or die, sink or swim. Swim. And I believe that as you have promised, none who do so will ever be lost. And that includes me. Revelation 21, 17, let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And this I dare to do, receiving and resting upon Christ and his finished work for sinners, for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. Well, so much for the question, what is this faith that we must have and continue to maintain? I'll have more to say about that as we work our way along next week. But this brings us now to the second question. Why is this faith in the gospel essential in the warfare and conflict of the Christian life? Why is it important? Why does Paul mention that? The conflict with the temptations of an evil world, our indwelling sin, the attacks of the evil one by which he seeks to destroy us and to lead us astray. Why is faith in the gospel essential? Well, of course, the first answer is, is that we have, if we have no faith at all, we're not Christians, right? But remember, Paul is writing to Timothy. He's writing to a Christian here. And he's telling him and he's telling us that we must keep believing we must maintain our faith in the gospel if we are to engage in this warfare of the Christian life with any success and with perseverance. It's not like we believe the gospel and now we're beyond that now, now we get on to other things. And this is one of the ways I've always, I understand my ministry as a pastor is to, is to help you to keep believing the gospel. We never get beyond that. Paul wanted to go to Rome, Why? Because he wanted to preach the gospel to the, those who are in Rome. And he's talking about believers in the church in Rome. We never get beyond the need for the gospel because it's essential in the warfare and conflict of the Christian life. Paul's writing to Timothy. He's writing to Christians. And he's telling us that we must keep believing. We must maintain our faith in the gospel if we are to engage in this warfare successfully. Or to change the illustration... Or let me put it this way, believing the gospel, in other words, is the, is the believers, the Christians' chief weapon in the conflict. Or you could change the illustration, it's the most essential, the most important piece of armor that we have in our spiritual armor. In fact, this is exactly what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.16. He says, above all. Above everything else I've told you, more important than anything else, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So what's the relationship between continuing to believe the gospel, reminding yourself of the gospel, constantly acting faith in the gospel, what's the relationship between that and overcoming in the Christian warfare? Well, Walter Marshall, who I mentioned earlier in his book, is very helpful here. In his little book, The Gospel, Mystery of Sanctification, he mentions several what he calls endowments that we must have in order to stand firm in the fight with sin and to make real progress 
in heart-deep, love-inspired holiness and devotion to our Savior and to persevere to the end. For example, one of those endowments, as he calls it, is that we must be well persuaded of our reconciliation with God. We must be persuaded that for Christ's sake, God has forgiven our sins and that we stand accepted and justified in his sight. Why? Because if we still believe that God is our enemy and we still view ourselves as under his wrath, that will either eventually leave us in despair, hardness of heart, or it will extort from us slavish, pharisaical, hypocritical morality. As Marshall argues, we cannot love God and obey him out of sincere love for him until we apprehend his love for us. And we only apprehend his love for us by believing the gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. And that includes me. We apprehend, we we come to grasp, we come to see and to experience the love of God by believing the gospel. A second endowment he mentions is that we need a heart inclined toward holiness and that loves holiness, something that's not true of us by nature. We need a new inward inclination. We need a new power, a new ability. But again, where do we get that? It's by believing the gospel. It's by believing union with Jesus Christ. Being united to him by faith, we're not only justified and reconciled to God, his spirit comes to dwell within us. And we are raised with him by the spirit to walk in newness of life. And we continue to enjoy those influences of the Holy Spirit working in us and enabling us to engage in this warfare only insofar as and to the degree that we continue believing the gospel. And then a third endowment he mentions, quoting from him here, is we need to be persuaded, he says, of our future enjoyment of everlasting heavenly happiness. Think with me. Paul, the Apostle Paul is constantly setting before the Christian in the trials and difficulties of the Christian life that hope that is before us, that confident expectation of the glory of the world to come. Think with me. Living for Christ, a life of devotion to Christ, killing sin, pursuing holiness, resisting the devil. In other words, waging this good warfare. It's not easy. Indeed, it is a, a battle, it is a constant, continual conflict with the flesh, with the world, and the devil. And there are many trials and temptations and difficulties along the way. It sometimes involves involves plucking out right eyes and cutting off right hands. Not literally, but involves at times denying ourselves and putting to death those darling sins that are as precious to us as our right eye or our right hand is to our bodies. And also sometimes the way of devotion to Christ leads to various degrees of persecution. Loneliness misunderstanding, men saying all manner of evil against you falsely for the Lord's sake. What is it that will sustain us and preserve us in in the way of devotion to Christ through all of that? Well, one of the things is the persuasion of your future enjoyment of eternal happiness and glory, as Marshall puts it. In other words, a confident expectation the steadfast hope in the glory of the world to come well how do we get that endowment as it were this certain and steadfast hope this confident expectation 
Well, it's only by believing the promises of the gospel. And the measure to which we enjoy this steadfast hope depends upon the measure of our faith and our confidence in the gospel. All of these absolutely necessary endowments for waging this warfare of the Christian life only become ours by faith in the good news, in the gospel, and in the person of Jesus Christ, the persuasion of our reconciliation with God, a new inclination and new power, the hope of the glory to come. Without these, no man will ever make any progress, and he will be defeated in the conflict. This is why Paul says, having faith. This is why, again, Marshall goes on to say this, that we are never to think Now, this is kind of old English syntax, but think with me here what he says. We are never to think that our hearts and lives must first be changed from sin to holiness in any measure before we can safely venture to trust in Christ for the sure enjoyment of himself and his salvation. In other words, we're not to think that we first must somehow change our hearts before we can come to Christ and trust in him. That applies when we are first saved, but it's the same as true after we're Christians. And the reason is because we will never be changed from sin to holiness in any measure until or unless we do safe uh, venture to trust in Christ for the sure enjoyment of himself and his salvation. We will never be successful in this warfare in any degree unless we're believing the gospel. And for the Christian, only insofar as we keep believing the gospel and are confident in our acceptance with God in Christ. So what do we say to all of this by way of application? There's so many applications, and I'm not going to get into all of them today. That's why I want to come back to it. But I'll say a few things by application this morning. And I first want to address those of you who are still outside of Christ. And perhaps you've been looking for something in yourself to make you worthy to be a Christian, to make you worthy to trust in Christ. Some beginnings of holiness, some changes, some right feelings to encourage you that you now have a warrant to come and to trust confidently in Christ and the salvation that he gives. But my friend, if you keep waiting for some right feelings or some good qualifications in yourself, you'll never come to him. Or if you did come to him on that basis, you would be trusting in your right feelings and your qualifications and not in him alone. Christ didn't come to save people who have right feelings or people who are starting to improve and are getting better or or to have some good signs about themselves that qualify them. He came to save sinners and that's the only qualification that you need. Right feelings and good signs, if they really are right feelings and really are good signs of grace, they don't precede faith in Christ as qualifications we must possess before we may have him. They are the results of believing in Christ. And anything that we might do apart from faith in Christ is unacceptable in God's sight. And so my dear friend, I call and I invite you this very day to believe that God sincerely extends to you, just as you are, his love and his mercy and his whole heart to you in Jesus Christ. He gives Christ and all the blessings of salvation 
that Christ has purchased by his blood. He gives him to you as a gift. And he says, come, come, and receive this gift and embrace this Christ that I set before you to be your Savior and Lord. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to see your need of him. I bring to you today glad tidings of great joy. Whosoever believes upon him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel invitation comes to you this day. Come, and let him who is thirsty come. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Do you want Jesus Christ? Do you want to be saved? Or are you willing to be saved by him from Sin's guilt, its eternal punishment from its dominating power over your life. Do you want to be reconciled to God? Do you want Jesus Christ to save you? Then take him freely as your Savior. You'll not be imposing upon God if you do that. He pleads with you in the gospel to do that. He calls you to do so. He invites you to do so. Listen, he even commands you to do so. 1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful command. God says, okay, I'll command you. I command you to believe. And to rejoice in the free gift of my son. And it is always permissible, whoever you are, to do what God commands. And to do it immediately. And someone says, well, what about repentance? Doesn't the Bible teach that we must repent? We must repent of our sins. But my heart is so hard, Pastor, I don't hate my sins like I should. I can't repent. I can't forsake them like I should. Well, yes, it is true. It's very true. You must repent. You must repent. But that's why you need a Savior. Listen to me. When Jesus came preaching the gospel and saying the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is the end to be aimed at, but faith in him is the means of obtaining it. The scripture says that John the Baptist came preaching the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, the Lord Jesus. You see, repent is really just another way of saying, start putting to death your sins and start pursuing holiness. Start waging the good warfare Paul speaks of in our text. But you'll never be able to truly do that without believing the gospel. True repentance is always joined to faith. It's not something we must have and then we bring it with us before we come to Christ. It's Christ who gives repentance and enables us to repent. The real question is, do you want to repent? Are you willing to repent? Though you lack the power to do so. Well, if so, that means you're willing to be saved. Just as Christ is also willing to save you. So you're both agreed. Come to him and believe that God really does sincerely extend to you, to you, my friend, just as you are 
right now his unmerited love and mercy in Jesus Christ. Believe it. Receive him. And rejoice in it. And know that there is therefore now no condemnation for you. Your sins are all washed away. The Spirit has come to dwell in your heart. Indeed, the very fact that you've come to him is itself proof of the Spirit's work within you. And be assured with undoubted certainty of the future enjoyment of heavenly happiness in the world to come when your life on earth is through. And then, my dear friend, press forward from this posture of faith and start killing sin and pursuing holiness in your life and waging the good warfare. Not in order to make yourself right with God, but out of gratitude and joy for what God has done for you in Christ and for his glory. And now as I close, dear Christians, those who are already in Christ, we don't ever get beyond that. You must do the same. You must keep going on in this way. This is what Paul is telling us in our text. Wage the good warfare, having faith, keeping faith, maintaining faith in the gospel. You must be killing sin, pursuing holiness, resisting the devil, enduring hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ from the posture of faith in the gospel. When in the conflict, you feel the workings of indwelling sin in your heart, or when you become aware that you have sinned and you've been wounded in the battle and your conscience is defiled, don't go back to the old legal way of trying to put yourself right again. In other words, the place to start is not just trying to do better and hoping that if I can do better, you might then regain God's favor. No, you start by reminding yourself of the gospel, believing that Christ remains free to you now, just as he was when you first came to him. Confess your sin, believing with a full assurance of faith that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse you from all iniquity and draw near to your God as a reconciled father looking to him for the promised strength to repent and to keep fighting that sin, to weaken it and to replace it with the opposite holy virtues. We get the cart before the horse. You begin with the gospel and don't give up the fight. Keep up the good fight of faith, believing and fighting, believing and resisting the devil, believing and killing sin, believing and repenting, believing and pursuing holiness until that day when the battle will be over and that day when we see our Savior face to face and there'll be no more sin, no more of the warfare. And we will worship him and we will serve him forever with unsinning hearts in the glory of the world to come. Wage the good warfare having faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We pray you would help us, Lord, to, to grow in our grasp of these things and and even beyond our intellectual grasp, but they would seep down into our hearts and shape our experience and our relationship and our understanding of our relationship to you.
We thank you for Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.